welcome to Paul's Podcast Diary, your weekly glimpse into the life of indie author Paul Teague. Find out how many words got written over the past seven days, hear what's on the planning board, and discover the tips and tools which Paul is using to self-publish his books and get them selling as fast as possible. This is Paul's Podcast Diary, and here's your show host, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Paul's Podcast Diary for Thursday the 4th of April 2019 and this is part one of my three-year anniversary episodes. So coming up in the Podcast Diary this week, it's a celebration of three years of this podcast today and to mark the occasion I'm going to share, wait for it, 75 things over three episodes that I've learned which may be useful to you as a self-published author. Now, if you're new to the podcast, this may well be useful as a jumping-off point. It's a Reader's Digest-style summary of where I am as an indie author in 2019. So because I ended up with a list of 75 things, I think it started as a list of about 40, went to 50 fairly quickly, then to 60, and then finally to 75. And at 75, I drew a line under it and thought that's quite enough. So I split it roughly. It's not quite 25 things in each of the episodes, but I'm dropping all of the episodes in today, Wednesday, the 4th of April, 2019. And then I'll give you a normal diary episode on Saturday. So I did think that you'd probably want to just split these up and listen to them in, in, in segments, basically. Coming up in this episode, then, I'll be talking to you about the 10 things that I've learned since starting this podcast, and also I will have 10 essential promotion tools for you. Before we dive into those, though, um, it seems remarkable to me that we have now done three years of this podcast. So it started off, um, it's kind of hard to put a precise date on it because I was recording episodes before we got started. Um, Joanna Penn at the time, she's, she's increased the number now. Uh, but at the time, Joanna Penn was saying that she would not talk to somebody as a guest on a podcast unless they had 10 episodes already, because most people give up a podcast after 10 episodes. So I thought, okay, that's like a red, red to a bull for me. So I made sure I got 10 episodes in the pot before I even launched the podcast. And then we, I launched about three episodes, I think, on day one. So I was well ahead before we started. And um, I just wanted to hit that kind of 10 episode point. And I can remember when I started um, blogging, I think it was in 2008, 2009. I remember doing a first post then and, and really didn't think that I'd be doing it 10, 11 years later, although I don't blog regularly, the podcasting is the thing that's really fired me. I never really took to regular blogging. I never would have kept that up, but I really do enjoy doing the podcast. And of course, the podcast started as a weekly interview guest. And then somewhere along the line, if I just have a quick look at my page here where I've got all the diaries listed. Um, I can give you a date for this. It was the 9th of May in 2016 that I started to have a little go with the podcast diaries. And I ran it um, for about eight weeks, I think it was, about eight, seven or eight weeks, gave it a break. And then very quickly, it became the most popular thing that I did on this podcast. So I know how it is as a listener that when I listen to Joanna Penn's podcast, for instance, on a, on a Monday, I always, always, always listen to her personal updates all the way through. And then as far as the guests are concerned, some I take and some I leave. It just depends whether I'm interested in the topic. And I know that's how people have used this diary too, that uh, some people, uh, you know, forget some guests are just not interested in the genre or the topic, and then they listen to others. Uh, but one of the most constant bits of feedback I've had about this podcast is that uh, people always say to me, if they're saying anything to me about the podcast, um, I listen to the podcast and I really like the podcast diary. And that's why the podcast diary is the thing that I continue to do, even though at the time of recording this, we're just having a little rest with the guests. 
And to be honest with you, it's fascinating for me too to be able to mark my writing history and to be able to dive back into episodes from three years ago now and to just see where I was in my indie author career. So as I say, over these next three episodes, I'm just going to be sharing where I am up to in 2019. And this changes all the time. If you go back to my old diaries, you'll hear me saying, oh, I did this and it worked and that works. And the thing you've got to understand, I think, about this industry is that it it doesn't stay the same. What, What I might have been saying to you three years ago just doesn't apply now. And what I'm saying to you now probably won't apply in another six months time. So this is really just me drawing a line in the sand and saying that on the 4th of April 2019, this is kind of where I am, this is where my thoughts are. So I thought it'd be nice to start with 10 things that I've learned since starting this podcast. And what I would say about this is this is just my personal experience. This isn't the gospel, this is just my personal experience. It's where I am, and this may change in the future. So number one, um, and I I think I learned this fairly early on, to be honest with you, I, I still think it holds true, is don't spend a lot of money on paperback covers. You'll make more from your ebooks, unless actually selling paper book backs is a kind of main part of your strategy. So I always like to, to give this one, really, I, I offer it because I think that when people start self-publishing, as I did, they spend a lot of money probably on the paperback covers, thinking that that's where the business is. And I can tell you that most people, most people, not all of them, there's always exceptions to every rule, but most people will say that they sell more ebooks than they do paperbacks. I sell a handful of paperbacks, but then I don't really push paperbacks. I only provide them as a service for people who would rather buy in paperbacks. And when I have sold paperbacks, uh, I, I virtually exclusively sold nonfiction in paperback format. So I did find nonfiction much better in paperback than I find fiction. Now, paperbacks are not a key part of my strategy. I don't do readings. You won't see me reading my books at a library or anything like that. I have zero interest in doing that. I'm too shy to do that, sort of too embarrassed, too awkward to do that. I know you wouldn't know or think that from doing this podcast, but I just, I would die if I had to do that. It's not something that I could do. So that's not a part of my strategy. You won't hear me reading my books. I'll just be selling them. I won't be reading extracts from my books. You know, maybe one day if I get a bestseller that's universally acclaimed and I have the confidence to do it, you might tempt me to do it, but it's not going to be happening anytime soon. So paperbacks really aren't a big part of my business. And I can tell you that, I mean, I think I probably make 95% of my income from eBooks. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is, is that when I got my first books published, The Secret Bunker Trilogy, I spent a lot of money. I mean, it was about £1,200 on the covers. And, and then, and, and to be honest with you, those are the paperbacks I sell more of in fiction because, of course, they sell in the secret bunker, uh, the the kind of tourist location uh, on which they're based. So uh, they are a slight exception to the rule. But £1,200 was a lot of money then. Um, I was bootstrapping that from doing training. And, and frankly, if I knew then what I know now, what I would do is just get Kindle covers for those books and just sell them all in in, in ebook form because that's what I sell most of and that's most profitable of course so my personal experience is that nowadays my kind of compromises because I do want to provide paperbacks for readers I do understand that a lot of people would rather hold a paperback but I do it in a cheap way now so I'll get the Kindle cover, which is always the cheapest cover to get. And then when I list them now on the KDP Select dashboard, when I create uh, what used to be Create Space paperbacks, when I do Kindle paperbacks, um, I just put them, I put the, the Kindle cover onto the little template that they give you for the covers. I match the, the rest of the cover 
colour as closely as I can to the core colour in my cover. That's really hard to say all those words together. And and it looks absolutely fine. It's perfectly acceptable for a book. And I, I kind of use their template maker for that. And if I ever got to a situation where a book was selling a load of copies and I felt that I needed to put more effort into that, I would. But my, my tip to you, if you're new to this, is to just is to, is to get a, a lovely cover for your, your Kindle book and then to use that on your paperback without getting a bespoke cover. Uh, and then wait till you've got some sales and tested the book and then maybe spend on a book cover. But you don't need to spend up front on a book cover. There are ways around it that frankly will help you to make uh, more profit quicker. Point number two is don't enter competitions or certainly not as a priority. Uh, again, when I started this, in fact, the whole reason I started writing was to take part in a competition. It was a children's book competition. I had to write 5,000 words for this this contest. And I wrote the first 5,000 words because I, I think I had some time on my hands at the time, found the 5,000 words quite easy to write. I hadn't read the rules properly, read the rules properly, realized that I was supposed to have the whole book written if I got shortlisted. And so thought I'd better write the first book. And the first book was The Secret Bunker. And that turned into a trilogy. Now, I, I didn't get listed in the competition, which is fine. It's neither here nor there. Uh, but uh, it did actually at least encourage me to 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 write again. And here, here I am sort of four four or five years later still still writing and thoroughly enjoying it but i have i have entered a lot of competitions i don't think of one in there i can't remember the one in me but i think i might have had silver or bronze and i've had lots of uh, what do they call them honorable mentions and things like say lots i've had a few honorable mentions i haven't entered that many competitions but most of them have an entry fee some of them are quite a high entry fee and to be honest with you, it's just a waste of time. I've, uh, the, the, the competitions I, I was silver in, I mean, they're great. They're a great little pat on the back. And it is quite nice to have that third party kind of feedback and validation. But I've had no benefit from, from the competitions I've entered. I've wasted an awful lot of money on it that could have gone on covers or Facebook ads or bookbub ads. You know, I just feel that the money would have been better spent. So um, I guess what I'm really telling you with the first two items on this list is it's first things first. I, I think that I would have to say, based on my three years' experience, and I actually, and actually I work with a lot of business, and I, I always say this to the businesses, is what you need to do first is to do the activities which keep the lights on in your business. So often spending a fortune on very expensive paperback covers is not the sort of thing that's going to keep the lights on in the business. The thing that will keep the lights on in the business is getting that darn book out there and selling, making some money from it, and then from profit, buying paperback covers you know rather than just stretching and stretching and stretching yourself putting all this money into launching a book and again at least then if you've launched the ebook and you've got great feedback and it's making good sales at least you know then it's worth the punt spending the money on a paperback cover and it's the same with competitions really you know they're they're nice to do but they waste a lot of money and frankly that money I think uh, certainly when you're getting started with your author career I, I don't see it as a priority not in my experience it's it's money that's better spent on marketing and making sales doing the things that keep the lights on in your author business point number three then is write a book that's about 75 to 90k words in length now I've I've written books that are 50k that's how I started writing and I've written books up to 90k they can all sell for the same price so if you're just being completely dragon's denish about this you know why would you write a 100,000 word book when you could write uh, two 50,000 word books and make more money from those. So if you're being completely strategic about that, uh, certain book lengths have certain prices. You know, if you write a 50,000 word book, you can list it in a book bub comp contest. You could do all the things that you need to. 50,000 is counted as a full length book. 
And like I say, I've written them at all lengths. Um, and also you've got this issue of the speed of writing too. So I, I generally feel, I think my sweet spot, 50 is, you can write a 50,000 word book very quickly when you've been doing it for a little while. But in terms of a kind of hefty book that traditional public uh, publishing experience, my feeling now is that uh, a 75 to 90,000 word book is probably a good uh, length to write a book for. But the other thing with that also is that if you, if you write one of these kind of 150,000 word mega books, you know, a huge, huge, huge book. I mean, obviously you've got to have some appetite to read books of that length, but that's a long time and an awful lot of effort to put in. Unless you're, you know, very sure of your, your writing abilities, that's going to take up a heck of a long time. It will be harder to sell and to promote because it's just so big. It, it almost to me makes more sense once again, from a strategic point of view, to write shorter at first while you're cutting your teeth and gaining your confidence and getting your voice, and then to write longer when you've got that kind of surety of sales, that that knowledge that if you put that effort into that huge book, that it's going to sell. And again, this is just my uh, experience. I, I would not have the patience to write a hundred and fifty thousand word book. I mean, they're you know it's just incredible that people write books of that length. I'm talking purely with my sales head on about writing books at a reasonable speed so I can very easily write a 75 to 90k book over the course of a quarter which means I can release four books a year that's a great speed it's not too fast uh, but it is fast enough to be getting books out there regularly rather than for instance being tied up for a year writing a single book and if that book dies so for instance if I'm getting four books out in a year any one of those books might be successful and all four of them might be successful but if it's taking me a year to write a single book and if that book dies that's not been very efficient in terms of my time management and my launching products which may or may not be successful because we never know what's going to be successful uh, when we launch it particularly when we're starting out. Point four, then, in terms of things that I've learned is to plot at least just a little bit. And I, I've kind of always depicted myself as a pantser, but I'm not, in, it's not, it's not really right to say that I'm entirely a pantser because I have always known where the story is going, although I might not have known all the detail in between. And at the time of writing this, I've just finished writing three very rapidly three fifty thousand word military science fiction books it's the fastest i've ever written the books and it's the most closely plotted i've ever plotted the books but still by the time i got to the third book i was kind of very loosely on the plot because so many things had changed and i think my my balance as, as a writer is that i like to have plotted the book uh, to a certain extent, but there has to be some elements of discovery and adventure in it for me as a writer, or I would be bored. If I was just joining the dots up, I would be bored by that. So, uh, I, but I do think that if you just launch into a book and you haven't got a clue where it's going, I mean, even just the barest bones of a plot, I think is probably qu quite essential. I, I don't think I've ever completely launched into something without a clue. And generally, I think you will get unstuck if you haven't even got a clue in which direction a book is heading. So plot at least a little bit would be one of my things that I've learned. Point five, then, is to write in trilogies and possibly, stroke probably, series, although I haven't written in a series yet. So if I've had success with my books, it's been with the trilogies that I've written. Uh, the Secret Bunker, uh, you know, people read through, they, they, I can give away book one for free, and then I make my money on books two and three. And The Grid is a trilogy, and Don't Tell Meg is a trilogy, and of course the military sci-fi series that I've just written is a trilogy. And if I'm writing any more uh, on my own, 
they will be thrillers in a trilogy because trilogies sell really well and they're really good to promote because you can promote the first in series for free or cheaper and then so long as obviously it's a decent series and, and people want to read through then you'll make money on books two and three and this is one of the things a lot of people struggle with particularly when I'm talking to when I've done talks for audiences who are from a traditional background they're saying things like I don't produce my art for free and, and my policy always is well you know you are producing it for free if you never make any sales um, I want to make sales so I price my trilogies in a way that I make my money over the three books and then of course I need to write a great trilogy for people to buy through unfortunately people have always bought through my trilogies the Don't Tell Meg trilogy has sufficient buy-through for me to be able to spend $550 on marketing on a book bub for three times now and to make several times what I spent on it back on uh, income based on the book one being free and books two and three then being priced it, it can that model works out very lucratively now what I suspect I probably need to try at some point is a series because the problem with a trilogy which is why I wrote some standalones is that although you can promote first in series, you can't really promote book two and three. Um, you, you know, because the way I write my trilogies, uh, you have to read them in order. So I haven't written series yet, but the joy of a series, presumably, is that you can promote book one or any standalone book in the series as a gateway to your series. So I haven't written a series yet. Um, I, I, I was trying, I, when I did Don't Tell Meg, I tried to make the book standalone. They don't end on a cliffhanger, as don't the military sci-fis, but they do kind of end on on a question or a next step. So they are there. I mean, I want you to read the next book, frankly. And I know people moan about cliffhangers. I don't really care. I mean, you look at um, The Hunger Games. You look at the Divergent series. They all ended on a cliffhanger. And they were films, for goodness sake. You had to wait a year for those. So my... My kind of, my patient attitude says, well, get over it. This is, it's a story. Stories have cliffhangers, uh, you know, get over it. Um, if you've read that long into a book to get to the cliffhanger at the end, I'm assuming you're enjoying it. And so therefore you'd be happy to read another one. But it, I mean, I, of course, cliffhangers are frustrating, but they're a dramatic device for goodness sake. All series, you, you watch Poldark on the BBC. It usually ends on a cliffhanger and you have to wait a year for it to pick up. So, uh, to me, it's just a storytelling technique. I don't, I don't know why people moan about it so much. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the things I haven't tried that I probably should try is a series in which each book has its own integrity, but then you maybe want to read the, ne the next in the series or, or future books in the series because you've got it like Pokemon, you've got to collect them all. So trilogies work really well for me, uh, but uh, I would, I need to test a series at some point, but I, I don't know whether I'll be able to wean myself off trilogies because they've worked so well in the past. Point six in terms of things I've learned is to be crystal clear about your genre and your market. If your book falls between two stools, if you're saying to people, oh, it's a, it's a thriller with a ghostly element or something like that, though I think that probably is a genre actually, so that might not be a good example. But if you're sort of saying it's a period drama with aliens, that's quite a niche area. Um, it's better if your book, this, this pertains to Chris Fox's right to market. It's better if you spot your niche, you target your niche, and you write in your niche, and you kind of stick to the genre tropes. Because if you're, if you can't really describe your book, if you said, well, it wouldn't really fit on the shelves in Waterstones, 
then you're going to find it hard to sell, I think. Uh, if it falls between two stools, then it had better be a great book or it probably won't sell. That's the truth of it. Um, a great book will always sell whatever it is. You, you can cross 20 genres if it's a fantastic book and it kind of gets that, that head of steam behind it. But if it isn't a great book and it doesn't fit into a clear genre, you're going to really struggle to sell it, I think is the truth of that. Point number seven, and this, I guess traces back to point number five when I was talking about trilogies and series is have a standalone book in each of the genres that you write in and, and this I learned because I wrote the Secret Bunker and then the Grid trilogies and I was feeling the need to have a standalone at least one kind of standalone because the, the joy of a standalone is that you could kind of take part in giveaways and competitions and things like that and People can just read a book and they're not committed anyway. They can just read a book, enjoy it, and that's it. It's no more, no less than that. And I think it's very good for promotional uh, techniques as well to have a standalone book. So I would say that whatever genre you write in, you have at least one standalone book. Now, because I've now got four standalone books in thrillers, I, I kind of not really sure what to do with them because I've had my sales success with the Don't Tell Meg trilogy with my thrillers. I've done nothing with my standalones. And, and I'll be honest with you, I'm struggling to sell the standalones. I'm trying techniques to sell them, but they just flopped out and haven't really done anything with a handful of readers. And they're very much like the first books that I published when I, I didn't really know what I was doing. Now, again, part of that's my fault because I haven't done anything with them. I haven't promoted with them. I haven't. I just haven't done anything with them. So that's why I'm doing rapid re-release later in the year. I'm going to get some new covers on them. I might get them some new titles. I might completely relaunch them and re-blurb them and just change the whole thing and just start from scratch with them. But that's why I'm doing that. And that, of course, is the joy of being an indie author in that we can change the books, change the titles, change the covers, change whatever we want, whenever we want. Um, and we can, if, if a launch has failed, if it's not gone very well, if we were distracted by other things, stick some new covers on them and start all over again. And that's what I plan to do with my standalones. But in, in spite of all of that, feeling that maybe I, I did too many standalones with the thrillers because they're not linked in any way. They're just completely standalone stories. They're all good stories. I think they're all enjoyable stories, a rattling, rattling good reads, but there's no way really for me to move people from one story to the next. That's the problem with that. Uh, but I would still have one standalone book, no more than two, um, that I could use for promotional purposes. The reason I say two is that again, if you're, if you're building your email marketing list, it's quite handy to have one exclusive book that you can give away uh, in exchange for somebody giving you their name and email address so that you're, so that they're on your author list. And then it's also good to have a book that you can give away in Insta freebie or book funny funnel giveaways as well. So, Certainly one, possibly two, but I don't think I would have more than two standalone books now in any genre. I'd always go for trilogies and series, which I haven't tried yet, as I've already said, and to have one stroke, two standalones. And that would be my my, my perfect complement of books. But that's me speaking where I am now with the experience I've got. Other authors may say different things to you. Point eight in this list then is to separate your author names if you write in different genres. It, you can even put an initial in. So I, I have three author names. I used to write nonfiction and I've stopped writing the nonfiction now because the kind of stuff I did was it, it sold perfectly all right. Uh, certainly my MailChimp and my WordPress books did very well in paperback and were quite lucrative. But um, the problem with those is that they were picture heavy books. They had to sell in paperback. You couldn't sell them as a digital book, even though people did buy them as a digital book. 
and they just changed every five minutes and it drove me spare. And I, I guess if I'd have ever, if I'd have produced those books in vellum the first time and I could have just changed them in vellum, then I might have been happier to keep those going. And, and again, I might come back to them one day, certainly not at the moment. I'm, I'm into writing fiction, but I have a, a non-fiction name, which is P Teague. I write my sci-fi as Paul Teague and I write my thrillers as Paul J Teague. And at the time of recording this, I've just considering whether I need to have a separate military sci-fi name or whether I can put my military sci-fi next to the secret bunker and the grid which has military elements in it the pro of that is that I can bring across audience potentially but the disadvantage of that is that they aren't they aren't pure military sci-fi and it might disappoint some readers so I'm mulling that one over. But as far as Amazon's concerned, so long as you've got a different initial in there, I could be Paul J Teague, Paul K Teague, Paul M Teague, you know, Paul Z Teague, it doesn't matter what the initial is. As far as Amazon's concerned, it's a separate name. And the reason you do that is so that you don't confuse Amazon's algorithms. So for instance, if I had science fiction, thrillers and non-fiction, under the same author name, it would confuse the heck out of Amazon because it would say, hang on, so people who bought a Paul Teague thriller also bought a book on MailChimp and also bought a book on aliens with laser guns. And it will say, we can't figure this out. We don't know what to recommend to those readers. So it's best to keep your author names separate, even if you've got 10 of the blasted things with a different initial between each one. Um, I am vain enough to want to use my own name. I do sometimes consider it, uh, using an alternative name, but I always think if that was the one that fired and I, I just called myself Fred Bloggs, I think I'd be really disappointed in that. I want my real name out there if anything ever fires with my book. So I just stick an initial in, but you could, of course, just make up a name if you want to as well. Point nine here is get your USA author tax arrangement sorted out as soon as possible. And this was something I was completely lazy about. I just couldn't, you know, I can't be bothered. I couldn't work out how to do it. I had a little try, gave up. And then I started to earn money on books, the sort of money where you're looking at a hundred or two hundred dollars at first and you're thinking, hmm, I quite like that in my pocket and not going off to the USA for tax. So when I was beginning to earn smaller, small amounts of money still, but the sort of money where you'd say, I could do something with a hundred or two hundred dollars. I'd rather that was in my pocket. At that point, that's when I got my USA tax sorted out. Now, basically, I, I'm not a tax expert. This is not financial advice, but, um, the USA retains some of your income, uh, which is effectively what it would take for tax if you were a USA citizen. If you buy, if you're selling books, say through Amazon and, and the various portals, and you basically have to fill in a declaration which says, "I'm a UK citizen. I don't pay tax in the US. I pay tax in the UK." And then you 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 get your your money without the tax taken off. And I've got a number. Is it an EIN number? I actually followed some advice and uh, rang the. The revenues, the IRS, is it in the States? I rang the IRS and they gave me a number and I registered with them. And, and now I don't pay tax in the, in the USA. And that's great because now I'm, I mean, you imagine what that tax would be on, on the months when I've earned 5,000 uh, pounds, three, two or 3,000 pounds uh, from a book bub. That would be a lot of money now. Um, so my recommendation to you is to do it earlier rather than later because when you do start making money you'll need to get straight on it you'll be under pressure because you'll just be losing money if you don't sort it out so do it early while you've got kind of time on your hands you're not making much money and you won't regret it when you do start to, to make some money finally in this list of 10 and you can see because we're half an hour into this 
episode already. This is why I've split them into three, because I've got quite a lot to talk to you about. But uh, number 10 in this list is choose your editor carefully. If you're going to allow somebody to slice and dice and criticise your work, make sure you've got the right person doing that, because an editor can really wreck your confidence and they shouldn't be doing that if a if an editor makes you feel bad about your writing or stupid or inferior ditch them they're not the right person for you an editor should be working with you to improve your work so it should feel like a team effort and we're both working to make this the best work it can be there should be no humiliation in there no belittling no feeling that you're not good enough you know my view always is is look i'm doing the writing you know if you think you know better write a book and do better right but you 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 bring the skills of editing to this i hopefully bring the skills of imagination and writing and we work together to create the best work that we can together it's not a case of us you know you sitting there look down your nose at me and criticizing me because i spell a, a word incorrectly or i get grammar wrong we're both working to produce the best project that we possibly can without sitting there judging each other and and so if you've got that you you need to ditch it you know you should feel good you should still feel good about your work when it comes back from an editor so i i had a, a very early experience which was not very good uh, with editors and then i very happily worked with helen fazal for whew, three or four years now i mean helen deserves a medal for going through all of my books but i think she has uh, certainly by the end of the year, she pretty well would have edited all of my books. My three military sci-fi books go to a different editor because I'm working as a collaboration there. So they go to the uh, my collaboration partner's editor in that case. So that's uh, an exclusion to that rule. But otherwise, Helen edits absolutely everything I do. Um, she had heard me uh, at a local event where I was talking about the bad experiences I had with an editor. She thought she liked the sound of my work, so said, I'll, I'll give you a sample edit, see how we get on. And here we are, uh, still working together four, four or five years later. Uh, and that's the kind of relationship I think you want to have with an editor. You know, I, I feel that Helen um, enjoys the books. That you, you should, I feel that she looks forward to getting them and reading them. Um, and I do feel like, you know, I get more than I would um, or should expect from an edit that I get a really kind of I get a work of love from Helen I always feel uh, with the edits not just a job she doesn't just do a job and I, I think we all want to kind of feel that with our editor so those are the 10 things that I've learned since starting this podcast and I might change my mind about editing tomorrow you know I reserve the right to change my mind but it just reflects my thinking where I am at this moment of time in my indie author career Okay, let's move to the second part of this podcast episode. And I'm now going to talk you through 10 essential promotion tools that I use in my indie author business. These are things that I use to promote my books for free or to build my mailing list. And I have tried a lot of them. And these are my favorites, the ones I'm recommending to you. So on my board in front of me, as I'm speaking to you now, I've got a big list of promotional sites. There's loads of them. Probably, it's probably fair to say certainly tens, if not hundreds of of sites that will take your money to promote your book and of course we all try them and I've now come up with a list of ones that I feel work pretty consistently and are of a reasonable price so number one then in that list of 10 is book sweeps which is a recent discovery for me and what book sweeps does is it teams you up with other authors in your genre and you all promote each other's books but also they they kind of sweeten the deal with an e-reader as well, which just makes it look slightly more attractive. And what happens at the end, it's all, all of these are GDPR friendly, by the way. Again, do your due diligence with that, but I'm always looking for promotions that are GDPR friendly, which is the, 
email marketing rules that we have here in the UK. But um, Book Sweeps is very good. Um, now, at the time of recording this, I've had my results back for a thriller. And I can't remember what we got. Was it six, seven hundred leads from that? And you do have to pay for book sweeps, by the way. And then I'm waiting for my leads to come from a sci-fi promotion, which I don't think was as good. So in the thriller, there were quite a lot of people taking part in that promotion, whereas in the sci-fi, I think there were only about 15. So I'm not expecting very many people back from that. But in terms of what's on offer from book sweeps, they give you some beautiful graphics, better graphics than you could produce yourself. They produce ready-made tweets and things like that. It's very professionally managed. Uh, they, as I say, they sweeten the deal more than you could by adding an e-reader to the prize. And I was very happy with the professionality of that service, um, even though I've only just used it twice. So book sweeps. This is a, a promotional service that would, you would use to give away a free book to build up your email marketing list. And so is number two and three on that list. So number two on the list is Book Funnel. Uh, book Funnel is used for book giveaways, but it's also a very useful tool if you want to send books to uh, readers, um, proofreaders or arc readers, as they're known, um, street team readers who read your book before it's released, looking for mistakes and errors. So I, I use Book Funnel for both of those. Um, but I particularly use it for giveaways. And I also particularly like on Book Funnel, you could list your own books or samples of your books. You could take part in other people's giveaways to build your email marketing list, but also you can very easily organize your own giveaways too, and people will join those giveaways. I really like Book Funnel. I, I like the interface. I think it's easy to use. I think it's professional from the user's point of view. It works. Oh, and the other thing I use Book Funnel for, by the way, I'm not doing this at the moment. Because I am doing it for my sci-fi, but not my thrillers. But I also use Book Funnel to deliver book sales through Payhip. And what's the other one you could use? What am I using? Not sales. I'm using another one. I've forgotten what it is. Payhip and another to sell your books. And also, I think you could do it through PayPal. I'm not sure. But it basically, you take the money through something like Payhip and book. you use Book Funnel to deliver the book. And I've sold lots of books in that way. And I've never had any customer service queries as a result of that. So I'm a big fan of Book Funnel and I pay for it. I can't remember. Do I pay £20 a year? I can't remember what I pay for Book Funnel. I think it's, you can either use it free it's something like £20 a year, then you can pay more if you've got more author names, something like that. Um, but it's, it's to me, it, I, in my opinion, it's the best. Authors XP also is a great place to build your list. Now, I haven't used this, and I should do, but I haven't used it since GDPR came in. Um, I stopped using it over GDPR because I wanted to make sure they were compliant. And I, I must have read an email the other day and seen that they are GDPR compliant now. But Authors XP, just like Book Sweeps, is another great way of adding a couple of hundred people to your email marketing list within a period of a couple of weeks. It's very professionally done. It's not very expensive at all. You just join giveaways with other authors uh, it's it's very good. I, I like it. And actually, I do need to come back to it in 2019. Now we've got that GDPR issue sorted out because uh, I just wanted to make sure they were, they'd adjusted for it before I took part in another giveaway there. In terms of promoting your book, I think we all know that BookBub rules them all. And I always call this next site, site four, Free Booksy, the poor person's BookBub. 
in that free books has always given me my second best results after BookBub. And before I was even getting BookBubs, I was using FreeBooksy. And FreeBooksy gave me my first $1,000 months when I used FreeBooksy. So if you think that if you listen to my diaries to three years back and I was making $10, $20 a month, just making no money at all, what moved me into the $1,000 a month league was free booksy. That's where I squeezed out those first thousand dollar months. It's a very exciting time when you could do that, when you hit four figures in a month. And it was free booksy that did that. Now you're paying about $70 for a free booksy. So of that thousand dollars, you're keeping a lot of it too. It's not costing you a fortune for the ad. So I highly recommend free booksy. Now I would say that I think it's become less effective than it was when I started using it. But I still like FreeBooksy. I still get on very well with it. And they also have a partner site called Bargain Books. I haven't had much joy with that. So FreeBooksy remains my favourite recommendation. Now, here's one that I found only recently, and it only costs, wait for it, $5. It's BK Nights, and you'll find it on Fiverr.com. It, costs, it does cost $5. You could pay a little bit extra for some other bits and pieces. I had zero expectations of this, but I've been aware of BK Nights for ages and it's on Fiverr and I always thought oh, I won't be very good, but I can't remember what made me do it. Somebody, I was probably listening to a podcast and somebody had mentioned that it worked and I thought I'm going to try this. And Joy you know works really well for $5. You absolutely can't knock it. It was great. It, it'll give you um, lots of free downloads. And I mean, really what could go wrong for, for £3.50 or, or whatever that currency conversion is so bk nights on fiverr.com i would quite happily use that and will use it again because it's only five euros five euros five dollars i beg your pardon but well worth knowing about that on fiverr another recent discovery for me is e-reader news today which is a what i would call a mid-priced promo site I only recently tried it out recently, as I would do if it was a recent tryout, and it's not too expensive, and it brought in a reasonable number of downloads. Not a huge number, but a reasonable number of free downloads, which then you hope will translate into people who buy books two and three in the series. The Fussy Librarian is also another site that I found that works. The the title always puts me off the fussy librarian and I'm sure I have been knocked back by them before, but they've also let me in now too. Um, again, it, it's professional. It's pretty cheap. Um, it does well. I think, you know, it's got a good reputation, the fussy librarian. So uh, give it a try. They will not, or they will or may knock you back. I'm pretty sure I've been knocked back by the fussy librarian because <laughs> I'm sure I, I would have moaned about the bid too fussy uh, on a previous occasion. And also number eight in my list, my book cave is also another site that I've used and, and got on perfectly all right with. It's a professional site. Uh, that's if you can get in. They've knocked me back twice so far, and I've got in once. And I th I'm sure it's my book, Cave. I'm sure I'm right in this, where um, when you submit your book, you have to go into, you have to say if it's got any um, sex scenes in it, which my Don't Tell Meg book is, and then you have to sort of describe in, in quite morbid detail the, um, the 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 kind of sex scenes that you've got it's and, and the violent scenes and things like that and it's it's actually worth doing it by book cave I'm sure it's by book cave just for the lists that they give you to work out precisely uh, how safe your book is to promote but I've got a one in three strike rate with my book cave uh, so far I will continue to try it because it, it was a good site it's a perfectly good site and it's what I would call a mid price site number nine on this list I've got to mention bookbub bookbub has changed my author life 
Um, I've made, I've had, I think two, certainly four to five thousand pound months. That's money in my pocket from Bookbub. Even when I've had, um, midweight Bookbubs, they've still given me three thousand pound months. You, you just can't knock that. And, and there's nothing, I don't think, if you're a, a struggling author, as I, I still regard myself as a struggling author, that if I, if I did nothing for three months, I would sell a handful of books. I have to constantly be marketing my books to make any sales. There's no element of, of there being any traction there. If I stopped, the sales would stop. I'd just make a, a routine handful. So I have to use promotion sites to keep things going. And, and Bookbub has changed my income levels. It's given me money that's allowed me to put decent covers on, get edits done. Um, I'm not at a stage where I'm really taking money out of my author business yet. I'm still bootstrapping it, putting it into covers edits, uh, it, you know, into learning how to do promotion. Uh, I don't take an income out of it yet. One day I will, but at the moment I just plough the money back. But you can imagine five thousand pounds worth of cash flow is fantastic to have in a business. And and Bookbub, to my mind at the moment, is the only thing that could deliver that in that tight time frame of a month for a normal stroke regular author. So do try for Bookbubs. I was I, I don't know why it took me so long to try for Bookbubs, but try for Bookbubs the minute you can. My only tip with a Bookbub is I think. I think if you had a standalone book and you priced it at 99 cents, uh, most people tell me that you make your money back and probably just a little bit of profit. I haven't done that and I don't know whether I would. I might, I might try one one of these days actually. When I've got decent covers on my, th- my standalone thrillers, I might try a 99p promo and I might then sort of very aggressively, um, put, uh, maybe a teaser to don't tell Megan there, a big, the first chapter or something like that, and see if I could then knock that onto sales in a trilogy. So, so I might say, I might try a 99 cents when I've got really good covers on my standalones, but I would say promote a series or a trilogy on BookBub. It's the safest policy. So you give book one away for free and you make your money on books two and three. And that's always worked for me. And of course, there's always this good luck charm element, isn't there? When you do things like that, that work, but that's how I'm doing it for the time being. It it certainly has worked very well for me and has been a blessing in terms of income and just changing my author fortunes around. Finally on this list, number 10 is prolific works. Now, I'm going to mention prolific works because it has helped me to build my list really fast. Now, very recently, if you're fairly new to this game, they used to be called Insta Freebie and they made some interface changes, which I don't like. Uh, th- this is why I'm not using it at the moment. But the minute they, they sort some of these interface things out, I'll, I'll be back there and using them. They changed the name to prolific works and they got this thing, which I hate, which is, um, when you're taking part in giveaways, they, they let other authors write comments, kind of testimonials about your books. And, and I guess I'm, I'm more resistant to this as an older guy. A lot of, a lot of this stuff, I just think this is just nonsense. It's empty. It's shallow. And I don't want people writing my book saying, Hey, this looks like a great thriller, everybody, but they haven't read the blasted thing. It just, it's a completely pointless exercise to me. I'm not going to do it for any other authors on prolific works. And I really don't want any other authors to do it for me because it's, it's just like empty. It's not a review. It's just a complete empty experience. And I wish prolific works would allow you, and and they may do at the time of recording this. I should probably check it again. I wish they would either allow me to block it as an author and say, please don't write stupid comments about my book when you haven't read it. It's a little checkbox that lets me do that. Or as a a giveaway organizer on prolific works, say, 
don't let people write stupid comments about the books on these giveaways. Um, but I, I hate that so much. I will not do a giveaway on prolific works or run a giveaway on prolific works until they give me control over that because I, I just don't like that system at all. Otherwise, prolific works is really good for promotions. But the other thing I don't like about prolific works, if I was choosing between prolific works and book funnel is I don't like the reader app. I think it's too hard to get the books on your phone. I think it's much easier with book funnel. I think prolific works have missed, missed a trick there. I think they make it too difficult to get the books. So I think, um, to be honest with you, I, I thought prolific works when it was Insta free, but I thought it was better than book funnel. And then book funnel made some brilliant changes that just were game changers for book funnel. So book funnel is now my favorite and prolific works is the one that needs to just catch up, I think. But uh, if they do catch up, you know, it's good. It's very good for shifting books. It's very good for building your list. Just a couple of little interface changes that I'd like there just to make it, just to bring it up to speed as far as I'm concerned. So there you go. That's this week's first episode. Two more to come. Lots of juicy nuggets, hopefully, like that. Lots of things for you to check off and try in your own indie author career. So we've done 10 things I've learned since starting this podcast and 10 essential promotion tips. And coming up in the next episode, which I'll be downloading or releasing about five minutes after this one into the feed, I'll be discussing 10 writing software services I use. Um, 15 writing craft books and audios that I have found useful in my career. And a lot of them I don't think you'll have heard of before because when I was checking my phone, there were lots of books on there that I listened to as audio books in the early days that were really, really good when I was learning about craft and story structure and things like that that I'd completely forgotten about. So there's a lot of gems in there, a lot of forgotten gems from my point of view that you won't have heard me talking about recently. So before I finish this first episode, let me just give you one more bonus tip for your indie author career. I would recommend you are a business when you're an indie author. Uh, You have to do accounts. You have money coming in, money going out, which means you have to do accounts. Most of us, I think it's fair to say, unless we're huge authors uh, or had a really good year, most of us will be sole traders in the UK. I know some people are LLPs or limited companies. I've had a limited company before. I went sole trader when I became an author. If I was making a lot of money, I wouldn't hesitate to go limited company again, but I'm not at that stage with my author career just yet. So my bonus tip to you is get yourself an online accounting software, which links up to your business bank account and your PayPal account, if you use PayPal, to make your end of year accounts easier. Now, I use QuickBooks self-employed software. And what that does is it links into my business bank account and it links into PayPal and it brings all of those transactions in. So all I have to do is reconcile them, which I usually do on a, on a monthly basis. I try and try and do it on weekly, but I donate. It's usually monthly. All I have to do is reconcile them to say that's insurance, that's a utility bill, that's software, that's marketing. You just have to put them into categories. And then at the end of the year, it will tell you, well, basically it just does your books for you. It's fantastic. Um, you can scan your receipts in it just makes my my yearly accounts a breeze. So the one I use is QuickBooks Self-Employed. It's not the only one that's available. I know I have recommended it to uh, a couple of people. Some people love it. Some people really don't get on with it. But that's the one I use, QuickBooks Self-Employed. It works beautifully in the UK. So it's got pounds, you know, pounds, shillings and pence. Um, and it does all my accounts. And it has all the UK kind of tax regs in there as well. So that's my bonus tip for you today. As soon as you start your indie author career, try and get yourself a little app 
record all your, your expenses. I mean, you should certainly do it even when you're losing money because you can carry forward your losses. This is not financial advice, by the way. Speak to your accountant. But it's always good to record your losses in those first years because when you start to make money, you could use those losses against your profits and you'll probably be very grateful that you recorded everything in those early years. So that's today's or this episode's bonus tip. Um, I'm going to be away for just a couple of moments and then I'll be back with episode two of this three-year anniversary diary episode. Back in a moment or two then, when we will be discussing 10 writing software services that I use and 15 writing craft books and audios that I've used in my indie author career. See you in the next episode.